Thank you for listening to sermons from Stonehouse Church. Our current series is called Seven Letters. Seven Letters is a sermon series looking at the letters of Jesus Christ to seven ancient churches. These letters fill the second and third chapters of the book of Revelation written by John, one of Jesus' twelve disciples. As we explore these seven letters, we will seek to discover what we as the church today can learn from Christ's words to the seven churches of Revelation. Our scripture reading is from Revelation 3, 1-6. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. A problem that Jesus confronts in this church today, and if you've ever been in theater, done a play or a musical, or or just uh, enjoyed kind of participation or even uh, watching one, uh, you understand that that part of uh, the... um, appeal and the magic of a live stage performance uh, is being transported somewhere. Um, And that happens largely through good acting and good singing and good music and good scripts. Uh, But it also happens in an unappreciated way, and that is with, uh, with good sets. Right? If you've ever been to a place where you walk in and that curtain pulls up and you're just like... I'm in the alleys of Brooklyn, New York, back in the day with the sharks and the, what were the other ones, and the jets, right? I'm like, whoa, I'm, I'm there, right? You, you get transported to a place. Just a couple of weeks ago, I got transported uh, to River, River City, Iowa, uh, when I uh, went and watched The Music Man at the Palladium. Uh, and, and so it was all Americana, Main Street, kind of cutesy little downtown type of a feel, right? So the, the, the point of a, of a set in a musical situation like that is to kind of present a, a, an atmosphere, a location that actually isn't there, but you're being told that it's there by the facade, by the, the stage dressing. Uh, but what's always interesting is no matter how great that set is, if you get backstage access you realize it's just a bunch of two-by-fours and, and, uh, and plywood and sometimes great styrofoam and fabrics, right? There are no real buildings. There aren't actual footings and foundations, right? Most of the doors and windows aren't opening and closing. They're just there. They're either painted or they're plax- uh, plexiglass or something. There's, there's just a big front and there's nothing really to it. It's not actually there. It's just presented to seem as though it were there. There's nothing behind that stage set. And so the, the, the play goes on, and the whole set is created in order to give the actors an opportunity to pull the audience out of their current position, out of their current location, and into another place, right? 
into another time, uh, into another city, into another country, uh, into a different setting. The whole point of the facade is to present something that isn't there, to really allow the actors or the musicians to create a sense of otherness, a sense of pretend and make-believe. It leads us to be, or leads the actors and allows them to be someone other than who they are. It leads them to be able to portray a different character, to become something else than what they really are. And in the teaching of Jesus and the way that he spoke to some people in his day, he used this word called hypocrite. And it comes from a Greek word that means actor or one who plays a part one who presents something that isn't really there as though it were real. That's what a hypocrite was, and Jesus confronted a lot of the religious people in his day with that strong word because they were pretenders or deceivers or liars. And so what we have here in the church uh, in Sardis, not Tardis, but Sardis, um, is a group of people that are presenting something that isn't really there. And Jesus brings a strong critique to them, an accusation even, uh, that they are not actually what they put forward, that they have constructed a facade, that on the surface level, if you were sitting in the seats observing, you would see an entire life. You would see a robust reality. You would see something that resembles goodness. But once you duck behind what's presented, once you get beneath the surface, so to say, under the skin, the reality is that there's dead bones and lifelessness. Uh, and so Jesus stands against this church with this strong accusation. Let's read the words again from Revelation 3, 1 to 6. It says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I, I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, guys, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for um, the free opportunity to be here in this place today and uh, to gather uh, with one another, uh, to gather with you, uh, and to gather before and under uh, your words. And God, your words to these churches have been strong, that there have been deficiencies and things that lack uh, in many of the churches that we see in these letters in Revelation. Many of them have some aspect of life and yet 
need confrontation in other areas, and yet today this church needs uh, almost all confrontation. Uh, it is a dead church. And that's a strong reality that Jesus is unveiling here, but I think what might be stronger is that there's an appearance of life on the outside that Jesus sees straight through, uh, and that for us it's harder to see through. And so, God, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, lead us to life and away from death, uh, that you would lead us to what is truly life, life in Jesus, um, and not that false life that is all about just our external uh, activity. Uh, we are prone, as humans, to look on the outside, not the inside. Uh, we are prone to forget uh, what is true about you and uh, what is true about ourselves, to know uh, how to respond. And we are prone to forget the gospel, uh, and that is where our true um, righteousness, our true life, our true vitality comes from. It comes from Jesus and his work. And so today in this text, would you confront us with those things that may be dead or those things that we may be walking toward that are dead uh, and that you would help us to about face, to turn away and to walk toward life, to walk toward Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. So to the angel of the church in Sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, Jesus says. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And so this church is dead according to Jesus' assessment. It might as well be called the zombie church. There's functionality to the church. There are activities about the church, um, but it's dead in all reality. The evaluation of the church is that it doesn't have true life. And so far as we've been looking at these different churches, Jesus comes to them and he says, I know. And he says something. He says, I know your works, or I know your surroundings, or I know your temptations or your trials, or I know your persecutions. I know something. And then every time so far, Jesus has said, I know what's going on, and man, you're doing okay about this area. You're doing pretty good in this area. You've, you've stood strong in this area. You've loved the gospel, and you've fought against those who pull you away from it. There's different things that Jesus commends, but here the church of Sardis gets no commendation at the beginning of the letter. Right? Right off the bat, Jesus says, you look good, but you're dead. Right? And Jesus said things like this to some Pharisees in his ministry. He said, you guys, you perform all these duties, you go above and beyond in some ways to the point where you're, you're tithing out of your spice cabinets. That's how serious you take the 10% rule that you put on. Like you, you're going crazy about that, but he says you're, you're whitewashed tombs, right? You're, you're filled with venom and all sorts of deception. And so these words aren't the first time that we hear Jesus say something like this. And so this church doesn't seem to bring any sort of pleasure to Jesus. There's no kind of, hey, this is a good thing happening among you. No, it's all strong and op uh, in, in opposition. And so the question is, what really has led this church to this place? Why is the church of Sardis dead? What is dead? What does that even mean? What does the appearance of being alive mean? And more so, not only what is it for them, but what could lead us to that same fate? 
What could lead us to become a people that are told by Jesus, you look good on the outside to everybody else, but you're dead on the inside? What would take us to that place? And I think the first thing that we need to understand is that we as humans are prone to look at the wrong things, right? Again, in verse one, Jesus says, I know your works. He says, you have the reputation of being alive, right? Meaning that's what other people on the outside looking at them thought that externally they had a reputation of being alive, right? So the evaluation to the human eye, to maybe just a, a general knowledge of or, 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 a, or a brief brushing past, there was the idea that this church had life. Now this truth points to something that's deeply embedded in human nature, Okay, and there's a, there's a passage in 1 Samuel where this, this tendency is highlighted. It's in 1 Samuel 16. So uh, it's the story of when Samuel the prophet comes to Jesse's house to anoint the future king of Israel. Okay, Jesse is David's dad. David we know full well, right? King of Israel, super popular guy. Um, so Samuel comes and the house of David is filled with young men, his sons. And there's six of them that stand before Samuel. And Samuel looks at the oldest, tallest, strongest, thickest beard, studliest guy and goes, ha, 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 this king's going to be killer. I can't wait. And God's like, nope. And he kind of, keeps doing that down the line. Like, okay, well, at least this guy's tall. Nope. Oh, well, at least this guy's strong. Nope. Well, at least this guy's back is straight. Nope. Well, this guy's at least, you know, and doing, 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 doing. And, and finally, God speaks to Samuel in verse 7 of chapter 16, 1 Samuel 16, 7. It says, but the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. So God has not chosen that person, that son, as king because David's the one that he's chosen. But then there's a, this tendency of humankind that is pinned down by God. So it says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So that was true of what was going on right then and there. Samuel was looking at external appearances, thinking the king would be the big, strong, tough guy. And he was wrong. It was the young, scrawny, ruddy one. I don't even know what ruddy means, but it was David, right? The youngest, the one that seemingly was left out amongst all the others. That was the one who was chosen. But in this scenario, God makes a statement that is true about the orientation of mankind's evaluatory skills, right? And that is that we as humans are prone, in fact, we are only equipped to look on the outside. But God does, is equipped to, and lives in this reality of looking past what's on the outside. He looks at the heart. You see, we're actually unable as humans to see rightly. 
because we are prone and equipped to evaluate things based on what we see. We're sight-dominated humans. That's the propensity of mankind, to look on the outside thing and judge the entirety by that appearance, right? And we have that age-old saying, don't judge a book by its cover, and we can say it all day long. We can put it on T-shirts. We can slap it on bumper stickers, right? We can post it in quotes on Instagram, but we're going to keep doing it because it's what we're prone to do. Man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. And when it comes to this church in Sardis, there is an external appearance of life that doesn't go deeper and look at the heart because the people are fixated on the external. And when we do this, it's difficult to care about the things that Jesus cares most about because we're prone to care about the things that man cares most about, right? The sight-dominated, sound-dominated world that we live in is prone to evaluate all things based on how they look. It actually goes against what's natural to us to evaluate things on a deeper level. And so what Jesus is doing here when he's evaluating the church is he's, he's using different weights and measures than humans do. He's using different weights and measures. And so the church in Sardis looked good to the human eye, but there are warnings in all of Scripture uh, about making our evaluations just on the outside. So the problem here with the church at Sardis was an external appearance without an internal vitality. Paul, in his letter to Timothy, his last letter to Timothy, he warns about this very thing. In slightly different words, he touches on this same issue. In, or in 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 5, Paul says this, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasing, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, external, reputation of being alive, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people, Paul says. Now, an aside, Paul says this to Timothy, and he says it's going to happen in the last days, okay? This letter to Timothy was written, what, like the 40s, I think? The letter to Sardis was written in the 90s, okay? So it's like 40, 50, 60 years-ish later, estimations. And already Jesus is saying there's an appearance of godliness and no power, you're not really alive. You're like that thing that has the capacity, but you're not plugged in, so you're not functioning at all. It's all set and clean and ready and just poised to do something, but it's not actually tapped in to what's powerful. So just 
some decades later, Jesus is speaking to a church that has exactly what Timothy warns about. It's the end times, Sardis, right? Which helps us evaluate Revelation. Revelation isn't just about the final few days before Jesus returns. Revelation is all about the period of history after Jesus ascended to heaven because that was end times. That's when they began and they've continued to this day. So that helps us evaluate Revelation, that it is a telling or an unveiling or a showing of all of the time after Jesus' life and death and resurrection. All of human history will, for, will forever walk through this period of time that encounters opposition and persecution and temptation to worship the world rather than God and all that type of stuff. That's what Revelation points us to, right? That whole reality. So Paul warns about this very thing that Sardis is, Right? And that evaluation is all about people who say they're Christians. There's a display of godliness. There's an external uh, acting, a hypocritical uh, putting forward of the idea that they are alive in Jesus when in fact they're actually dead. And Paul says, avoid these people. Don't learn from them. Don't watch them. Don't envy them. Don't approve of them. Right? I mean, that's heavy when it comes to looking at who we are as Christians. So, so then what, what is the appearance of godliness or what is this reputation of being alive? And I think you can easily look at it as, as five different things. Good morals, religious activity, Christianized accoutrements, political affiliation, and asceticism. So some of the ideas of godliness come from good behavior. You look at someone, you see them behaving good, and you think, well, they're godly, right? It's just about external behaviors. It's just about good morals. Or possibly it's about religious activity. You look at someone who attends worship services, who reads religious texts, right? Uh, who, who, who worships in particular ways on particular days, uh, and, and you assume then that there's life there, right? Also, and I think this is more true of us today than it probably was of Sardis, but it might have been true of them, these Christianized accoutrements, right? We decorate our life with Christian things for the appearance of life, right? Whether it's clothing or uh, identification things or, you know, bumper stickers or attendance at certain types of things or listening to certain types of music or not others or whatever. We just, we, we kind of learn the idea of what the Christian type of people do and we do that. That can have an appearance, an external appearance of godliness and not actually have anything to do with our hearts. We can just tack stuff on the outside. And I know this one's going to really make us angry, but political affiliation and, and uh, action for some people can be the same thing, right? And this, is, this can go both ways. So don't think I'm picking on right or left or up or down. I don't care. As long as you think that following Jesus means you must do this politically, you're, you're just doing an external thing, right? If you're motivated from the heart, that's a whole other thing. But if you're just buying in because that's what everybody does, that's how all of those people are, then, then it's just external, there's no real life in that. And then finally, asceticism, right? Which is like severe self-discipline or avoidance of particular things, right? So this was like what the teetotaling era did to Christianity in America, saying that, well, all Christians don't do, right? 
You don't drink or chew or go with girls that do. That was the thing back in the 60s or whatever. Right? It's all about the things you hold back from. Well, I don't. I don't. I don't. Right? Because I'm something holy. Okay? What's crazy is that some of these things will result from a deep heart transformation, but every single one of them can be done with no new heart at all. Right? That's the really hard part about this. <laughs> we can't say, well, a real Christian doesn't really care about morals. Wrong! <laughs> they do. <laughs> right? A real Christian does care about consumption, what they take into their life. A real Christian does care about things that matter in their world. Politics, right? So you can't say they're just one or the other, there's this nuanced reality because you can do all of these things really without being alive in Jesus. So it's, it's tough. We want to evaluate closer than just external behaviors. So here's the thing, and this is where I think it's particularly tough for us in our time, in our place, because we're in America and Christianity is largely assumed here, Okay? There's all sorts of arguments right here, right? No, it's not, blah, blah, blah. So I'm not saying we're a Christian nation, because I don't think that's true. But we, the West, generally, we, America, are largely influenced by Judeo-Christian ethics, okay? Um, the, the entire idea, and I just listened to a talk by Tim Keller on this at the uh, prayer breakfast in England a couple weeks ago. Uh, the entire culture of love is influenced by the move of Christianity uh, in Europe that overran the era of kind of just more barbarianism, right? So before Constantine said Christianity is the official religion of Europe, right, of Rome, before he said that, the assumed ethic was one of power and of dominance and kind of a shame type of a culture, so you would live toward particular things so, so as to display your strength, okay? You would try to be good at work to show you were great. You would be good to somebody else to show that you were better, right? You would move in particular uh, streams of society in order to avoid the shame of not being someone good. Then Christianity came in. And Rome kind of collapsed to the idea of Christianity, which was dominated by a self-giving, other-centered ethic, because that's what Christianity is. It is other-serving, self-sacrificing. And so instead of saying, I'm going to do things so that I can make myself look powerful, society began to say, we're going to do things because that's good for others. Right? Right? Fast forward a couple thousand years, and here we are today, and love is the word, right? What is the love that our world talks about? The love that our world talks about is a love that is trying to do for others and make them something that is good. It's an entirely Christian-based idea, and we've perverted it. Yeah, sure, absolutely. But generally, the idea of love as a motivation is a Christian idea that has woven itself into our entire culture. Okay, that's just one example of how Christianity is kind of just assumed here in our culture, in our time, and in our place. In addition to that, 
many of us, because again, we were in America, we were raised in a church, right? We still have that as our experience. And because of being raised in a church, we were surrounded by something that taught us to be good and to love and to be nice and to think of others. And whether we realize it or not, we're products of our environment in some way, and we begin to pull that idea into ourselves, right? Like, if you're from the Northeast, you like lobster, right? If you're from the South, it's fried chicken and grits, right? If it's Texas, you like barbecue, right? If you're from the Midwest like me, meat and potatoes, baby, right? The place that you were in develops your tastes, it develops the things that you do and the things that you like. And so we grew up in this environment, and God bless our parents, even the best of them, even the best of them generally pushed us towards morality and behavior adjustment rather than towards gospel belief and faith in Christ, right? I'm not saying they didn't do both, but a lot of times we're, we were pushed towards understanding morality. And let's just admit it, we're immature as we grow and we take on things that aren't completely true. So a lot of times, even in a church that taught the gospel beautifully, that said the only way to please God is to put your life under Jesus, to submit to him, to let his life and his death and his resurrection be in your place to earn you favor with God. Even in a church that was filled with that kind of preaching, there's still the catching of just be good. It still happens, right? And so this is largely a lot of our backgrounds. We've been trained in these things. And even if you weren't raised in church, and you're trying to figure out what does it mean to follow Jesus or be a Christian. You're still prone, as a human, to fall in line with some of your preconceived notions about what's right and wrong to do. We're prone to just external behavior adjustments. And you still have these influences of Christendom that are leaking out of our culture around us. And you also still have the natural human tendency to look on the outside and not on the inside. So when you evaluate even a religion, first, you go toward, what do they do? <laughs> what do they do? What are the things? What are the practices? Right? That's, that's what it's like often for a human to look into or explore Christianity or evaluation. And so because of all of this, we are in grave danger of having a duty-based behavioral adjustment because of religion. We are prone towards living in assumed actions. You do that because you're supposed to. That's what Christians do, right? We are prone toward neat and tidy piety, right? I read this then, I pray that there, I go that, I go there then, I stand then, I sit then. I mean, we're prone to just move into the forms of thing, things. We are prone to all of these things with not having the life of Jesus present at all. So lest we personally and as a church move in the direction of Sardis, we need to tap into the power. In Revelation 3, 2, Jesus says, wake up. He says, wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. 
verse 3, he says, Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I come against you. Now there's two stories in Matthew that are really scary that talk about when Jesus finally comes and judges. The scariest ever is in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Jesus is kind of having a conversation about the judgment throne, about when it's all said and done. When history wraps up, and Jesus comes to finally bring the kingdom in its fullness. Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's terrifying. He's saying the same thing that he's saying to the church at Sardis. He says there's a lot of people that are going to walk up with a document, either physically or in their head, will have a nice little list on it, that they've been paying careful attention to, checking it off, saying, I did the stuff. I did. I did the, the do, the doing, the, the done. I did. <laughs> and the strong response from Jesus will be, I, I, I don't know you. Right? The word know here meaning deep, intimate association with. Whew. That's heavy, Right? Contrast that with Matthew 25, verse 31 to 40. This is a story of Jesus, again, saying when the Son of Man comes in glory and his angels are with him, he's going to gather the nations and he's going to divide sheep and goats. Okay, It's this idea of uh, those who have been washed in the blood of Jesus and those who haven't. In verse 34... He says he's going to come to those on the right, that meaning the sheep, and he's going to say, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you by the foundation of the world. So he's saying, here we go. We're going. The kingdom's here and you're in. Come in and enjoy it. <laughs> come enjoy sinlessness. Come enjoy no tears. Come enjoy no sickness. Come enjoy life forever, right? And then he says, four, verse 35, which is intense, right? Come and do this because of what is to follow. And he talks about actions. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in person and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it, to one of the least of these brothers, so you did it to me. So we have these two illustrations of the end. In one illustration, we have a group that is confident that they have done everything 
that they need to do to get to heaven. Lord, Lord. Drove out demons. Right? Prophesied, meaning we taught God's word to people. Did it? We're in, right? Then on the other side, you have this list of people that are like, oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't do a thing to deserve this. Jesus is saying, you, you're coming to heaven. They're like, what? Oh, man. Did I luck out? I can't. I didn't, I didn't. When did I do that? I don't. I wasn't. Really? Did I? And Jesus said, yeah. Remember when the people that couldn't give you any credit for the stuff you did and you did it anyway? Remember when the ones who doesn't matter if they see you do things? Remember when they saw you do the things? Remember when you went to the place where people don't praise your obedience and you were obedient anyway? Those were the times. Those were the times when who you really were came out. So either we fixate, obsess, categorize, list, and check off all our deeds, or we madly, passionately, with a heart filled with love toward Jesus, live a life stumbling through acts of obedience because God's power is alive in us, not keeping tabs on our goodness over our badness, not running a list of our credits, but doing because of who we are on the inside flowing out of us. Those people will stand before Jesus on that day and he'll say, hey, it's party time. The trials, the persecution, the temptation, the laboring, the patient endurance that is spoken of again and again in Revelation, it's over and you're with me now. Right? Do you see the difference? Sardis had a list. They were doing it, man. I don't know if they had really good outreach programs. I don't know if they had like, you know, really killer small groups. I don't know if their worship band was like an entire orchestra with a choir and robes. I, I, don't, I don't know if they were big. If they were big, or, I don't know if they were small. But what they were was focused on the external. Deceived into thinking it was life. And Jesus said, you're dead. They didn't have connection to the true power. Revelation 3.3 3 again, he says, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. This sounds an awful lot like Paul when he says, I give you first in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, well, I give you first and foremost the gospel what's been preached, what's been delivered once for all time. Hold on to that and never let it go. Keep on remembering the gospel. He, he says nearly the same thing. That thing which you've received, that thing which you've heard, now keep it. Right? Paul says the same thing. That thing which you received, that which was delivered, stand in it. 
That thing is the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek, 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. Go back to the gospel, remember the gospel, know the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is that my deeds are not enough. Right? We're often prone to think the gospel is I'm a sinner and I need forgiveness. Yes, absolutely. But also the gospel is I am a sinner and I am prone to performance and to think I can achieve salvation and not need Jesus at all. Both our sin and our righteousness will keep us from God. Both. Right? They will both keep us from God. In our sin, we say, I don't want God. I don't want God. I want this thing that I enjoy. It is enough for me. It is satisfying to me. It fills me. It makes me happy. It keeps me up. I don't want God. I want this. We worship the created thing rather than the creator. That's sin. We do that all over the place. And it leads us into all sorts of traps. But we often miss or neglect the other pit on the other side of the road, and that is that our self-righteousness says, I don't need God. I have me, (laughs) the great Savior, the mighty, strong, powerful one. I've I've got my stuff. I've got my deeds, I've got my heritage, I've got my behavior, I've got my duty, I've got my obedience, I've got my, 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 me, I don't need God. Sin says I don't want God. Self-righteousness says I don't need God. Both are keeping us from God. Repenting, like Jesus called them to, and believing, returning to what they've received and heard, coming back to that again and again, leads us to say two things. I need saving because I'm a sinner who loves things over God. Also, I need God to save me because I cannot save myself. We have to keep both of those together to believe and to return and to repent. You see... The church at Sardis, it wasn't so much being reprehended for its sin, okay? Although that's there. He says, some of you haven't stained your garments, okay? So there's a conversation. Part of it is saying people have stained their garments. But largely what they're reprehended for is their righteousness because it was a false righteousness, because it was an external righteousness. It was doing the Christian things, keeping the Christian appearance, Jesus came against that fiercely and he calls them to repent. And often that's the opposite of what we think Christianity is. Right? Because the gospel calls us to evaluate even our good deeds. To realize that our own righteousness is like filthy rags. Right? Because what it can be stained with all sorts of attitudes it can be stained with all sorts of ideas of grandeur. 
It can be stained with earning the approval of people. Right? I mean, this is a, listen, this is a deep danger for my soul to stand here and say these are God's words every week. It is, it is, a trepid, it is with trepidation that I do that. God, do I base my okayness on the fact that I stand here? Is that what I feel makes me good? Is that what I feel that when I come to your throne, I will say, <laughs> whoo, those few years, it was just me. Oh, that was good, wasn't it, God? Right? Like deep danger to my soul. When you find your life filled with Christian activity, be slow, be cautious, pause, and evaluate your heart. Yes, listen, let's go at it like gangbusters. But let's be careful. Our hearts are dark and deceitful. And this is why we need one another. Because as we go through this activity, <laughs> we're going to bump and rub and collide. Right? And guess what happens? The stuff on the inside comes out, and that's a grace to us. Right? To have that friction with your brother or sister in Christ while busy doing God's work is a grace to you to reveal your heart. What's deep on the inside? Right? What's behind the facade? What's holding up the building? Is it a heart of love that's not even paying attention to the good deeds you're doing because you're just trying to worship Jesus? Or is it a dark soul fixated on self-justification, self-righteousness. Jesus calls to repentance, and look at what his call to repentance looks like. It's beautiful. Yet, verse 4, you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not sold their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. To the one who conquers will be clothed thus. So the one who conquers will be clothed just like this, in white garments. There's a reality to Christian living that is living in someone else's duds, to donning someone else's robes. Remember when you were little and you went into dad's closet and you put on his sport coat? I still don't have a sport coat. What's wrong with me? My dad had awesome sport coats. I should have just taken, oh wait, I might have taken one because we were going through his closet last fall. I might have ended up with, they had these cool elbow patches, right? And like, I wore them, and my dad was a Sunday school teacher when I was a little kid, so I, I like wear them, and I'd, I'd imagine myself being like some kind of a cool teacher guy out there telling people, you know, what the lesson teaches, you know, or wearing your dad's shoes and, you know, sliding, or they were boots for me, big Sorels, they call them, you know, wearing dad's big boots or gloves, you know, clothed in somebody else's garments. That's, the whole call to righteousness. When we're called to righteousness, we're called to a different set of clothing. We're called to wear that which doesn't belong to us. It's a borrowed righteousness, as John Stott says. It's not your righteousness, it's Jesus' righteousness. And when you're clothed in Christ's righteousness and when your heart is renewed by the power of the gospel, your behavior does change, yes, but not because you're obsessed with the behavior, but because you're clothed in Christ. You're in Jesus. You're obsessed with him. 
and being like him and loving like him and serving like him and laying your life down like him. That's the life of Jesus, the power that we need to tap into if we're going to live out this obedience. So may you learn to keep in proper perspective these outer appearances of life and may you find your works to be a byproduct of following Christ and not the focus of a life of duty. May you repent not only of your sin but also of your self-righteousness and be delighted to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. May the life of Jesus so fill us that we walk in his white robes both now and forevermore. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, your words, though they're strong, are good. They're good. And Lord, please, would you permeate this place with a humility that accepts the evaluation of Jesus who sees rightly and not the evaluation of men who don't see fully. Lord, we know we are prone to an external evaluation. We are prone to looking at uh, outward appearances. We are ever tempted to judge the books around us by their covers and also to be the book ourselves and put on a good cover. But oh, how desperate we are to put on that foreign righteousness, that borrowed righteousness, the one that we get from Jesus. Because on the cross, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So fill our hearts, we pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.